Mission Jesus. Jesuit Father John Edwards, on mission, talks about the roots of sin. By roots of sin, I mean the deep down stuff from which bubble up the hopefully small sins that you and I confess in the confessional. They're like pimples on the face. Small things, not very important, you might say. But a pimple is there because of a poison in the blood. And the roots of sin are those deep down poisons, things which could, under other circumstances, be lethal, could enable us to crucify Christ and to damn ourselves. Now the first of these roots is fundamental to all sin, whether it's big sin or little sin. And notice this, that a sin is serious not because it feels serious. Feelings can be a very bad guide. A thing is serious if it is serious. People can, in fact, quite easily accustom themselves to doing things that are seriously wrong. And they don't feel it as much as something that might be quite trivial. I mean, you could get a man who would feel less guilty about deceiving his wife than about cheating on his railway fare. Now, the root of all sin is this one. We know what God's will is, and it's right up there above us. That is what God wants, and we know it. Or at least we've got a nasty feeling that that is what God wants. Now, what you and I want is slightly offset. I mean, it's at an angle. Now, what ought to happen is this, that you and I heave our own wills around and embrace God's. That gives God great glory and brings us fulfillment. It may cost the earth, but it's what God wants. It's the way we would love God. Now, that's what ought to happen. What happens when you and I sin is this, that we attempt to push God's will from that supreme position above us to one side and erect our will where God should be, heaving his will out of the way. What does it feel like? Well, if anyone has forgotten what a deliberate venial sin could feel like, it's like this, if you put it under the magnifying glass. If you blow it up large, this is the psychological mechanism involved. Lord, uh, that's what you want, is it? Well now, I love you very much. You know that. And of course, I wouldn't do anything that would offend you. And... Um, what I'm doing now, Lord, I... Uh, no hard feelings about it, eh? It's not that I don't love you. I do very much. It's just that what you seem to want um, doesn't coincide with what I want. What you want is, in fact, let's face it, Lord, pretty inconvenient for me. So I love you very much and no hard feelings, but look, God, do you mind? 
get out of the way because I want this. Sorry about it. I mean no harm. But just now, take your hands off me, shut your eyes because I want this. And you see what's happened. You and I have pushed God's will out of the way, put our will, what we want, in God's place. In fact, we've put a little idol or attempted to put a little idol in the place of God himself. Now, the name of your idol, I don't know. The name of mine is John Edwards. Now, that is what every single sin consists of. Putting self in place of God. And you can see it is hideous. And it is, in essence, damnable. Now, the closer we come to God, the more we're going to realize, presumably, the degree of self-will in us. If you love someone very much, you're aware of when you hurt them. Now, the closer we come to God, the more we should be aware of our sinfulness. We've got to balance intense awareness of our sinfulness with immense gratitude to God for his forgiveness and for the union with him to which our weakness could entitle us if we handled it rightly. But more of that later on. Anyway, that's the first root of sin. It is putting self-will in place of God's. The technical term for it in English is pride. And it's a bad word because pride to us means something like vanity or showing off or boasting what a small child does on the playground when it scored more goals than somebody else. That's not the essence of the sin. The essence of it is putting self-will in front of God. Signs of it? Well, all sort of self-aggrandizement. Putting self in front of other people, of course, largely. That's the first root of sin. May God make us more sensitive to it. May he lead us to deplore it and may he forgive us. Our second root of sin, moral cowardice. It's a nasty one. Well, all roots of sin are nasty ones, obviously, but nobody likes admitting they're cowards. I'm not talking about physical cowardice. This is moral cowardice. The point is that you and I, through fear of what other people might think, through fear of what other people might say, don't do things that we should do, do do things that we shouldn't do, do do things we don't even want to do that aren't according to God's will. It's Peter's sin at the fireside, of course. He denied his Savior through fear of what others would think. You and I may consider this a young person's sin. I mean, the girl. When something is done wrong for the first time and it's in sexual matters, is it because she wants to be promiscuous? Probably not. It's probably because she's at a party and these things are sort of happening and she doesn't know how to handle the situation and she's afraid of getting up and going. Or perhaps she's with a boy and he's expecting this or that and she's afraid of what he might say. She's afraid of losing him. 
And so, through fear, she submits to something she does not want. Or a lad, the first time he has too much to drink, is it because he likes the taste of beer? Likes the sensation? Probably not. It's probably because he's at a party and he doesn't know how to pull out without looking stupid. Or he's got to buy the next round and he can't say no. He's afraid of what his mates would think. Well, it's not just a youngster's disease. We've got it too. Of course, we've got to take on protective coloration to survive in society. Just maybe we take the dye too much. Maybe that we've really altered our thought patterns, our reactions, our instincts, so that we lurch into offenses against God, basically through fear. So, for instance, the lad that I imagined, he gets drunk. He's a good lad. He comes to confession. He confesses this. I had too much to drink further. But his root sin was not drunkenness. The root sin was fear. Deep down in you and me, we have a source of evil which could be affecting far more of our lives than we usually consider. May God give us more light. May God give us more courage. May God forgive us. Our third root of sin is a very difficult one because you can't see it. It is precisely blindness. I'm talking about culpable blindness. You don't blame a blind man for tripping over something because he's blind and he can't see unless he blinded himself. And then it is his fault that he trips over this Pavement, can't see the sunset, can't read this book so easily. Now, you and I have blinded ourselves, deafened ourselves, at least to some extent, to things God would be wanting to show us, wanting to say to us. And it is our fault. Example, I'll take it from a youngster's experience. And this is a scary example, and I'm afraid it could strike home to very many people. Imagine a lad, or a girl, we'll say it's a boy, of 15 or 16, and he's from a good Catholic home, and he goes to a good Catholic school. And he says one day to his mum and dad, I'm not going to Mass next Sunday. I get bored at Mass. I don't get anything out of it. I could pray just as well somewhere else. I don't see why. I should have to go to church to pray. As if you and I go to Mass to pray. We do pray at Mass. There's really nothing else to do. But that's not why we go to Mass, precisely. More about that in another context. Anyway, this is what the boy says. Now, mother and father are heartbroken about this. They're shattered. They blame themselves, of course. They say, where did we go wrong? 
And of course, they can see plenty of times when they weren't as wise or as sensible as they should have been. They make the best of it. They don't nag him. They pray about it. They comfort themselves by saying, well, he is of an age now. He's got to make up his own mind about things. He's following the light that he's got. In a sense, I suppose one could say he's following his conscience. There's no real malice there. And perhaps it'll all come all right one day. Now, I would take a meaner view about it, really. I would want to know what sort of contact that lad had had with God during his life in more obvious and measurable areas of the direct relationship with God. I'd like to ask, how often has he ever been to Mass on a weekday when he didn't have to go? Well, quite often he's been to class Masses at school. No, I mean when he didn't have to go. The answer is, never. Well then, the Word of God, he's heard a lot about this at school, and he's been told that the Word of God is really food for the soul. How often has he read the New Testament, shall we say, because that's the most obvious thing, has he read the New Testament, say part of the Gospels, for five minutes on end? Well, he did. Last term, he did a theme on St. Luke's Gospel, and he read that Gospel for ten minutes on end. No, I mean when he didn't have to, to feed his soul with the Word of God. How often has he ever read the Bible for five minutes on end in his 15 or 16 years? Never. Well, prayer. To take an obvious thing, he got a rosary when he was confirmed and when he was a little boy they told him about Lourdes and when he's a bit older they told him about Fatima. H how often has he said the rosary? Said the rosary? You must be joking. He wouldn't know what the mysteries are. Has he ever said one decade of the rosary? Voluntarily, alone? Never. Has he ever prayed at all since the age of ten? Well, yes, he does. Quite often, at night, when he gets between the sheets, sometimes for two minutes on end, he asks God for things that he wants. Now, I say that he is blind, and he has blinded himself, and it is his fault that he is missing Mass. And he has gravely deserted his Lord through his own culpable self-blinding. And you and, well, all of us would rise up in protest with, Father, you can't say that. Kids don't think like that nowadays. That's not fair. Perhaps that's really my point. They don't think like that, and they should. And you and I don't think like that, and maybe we should. 
Never mind the youngsters. What about ourselves? What might God have wanted to show you or me? What might God have wanted to say to you or me? But he couldn't because we were blind or blinder than we should have been or we were deaf, deafer than we should have been. And it was our fault. We had, through our own neglect, our own sinfulness, made ourselves insensitive to God. What might God be wanting today to press into our hands if our fists weren't tight, clenched, shut? What might he be wanting to tell us? What might the Holy Spirit have for us? But we can't hear. We've taken good steps to deafen ourselves, to blind ourselves. It's a very scary one, this. Not just because of the horrible example I gave when I judged the youngster so strictly, but scary for you and me too. From my hidden sins deliver me, O Lord. That's the prayer for this one. The prayer to be forgiven and we need to pray, I suppose, to dare to pray that God should strip away from our eyes the veil that we have in front between us and him. Now, this next root of sin is one that many people never see at all, never crosses their minds. And yet, it is a very important one, a very horrible one, of course. It is not knowing that God really loves us, not trusting God. And the symptoms of it? Well, every time you and I are depressed, every time you and I are anxious, every time you and I are angry, every time you and I are worried about the past, worried about the future, we are being tempted to say that God is either not totally in control of his universe, or, while being in control of it, is not in fact well disposed. We're really being tempted to say that God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. If God were all-powerful, if I really thought he was all-powerful, I wouldn't really be worried so much, depressed so much, angry so much. If I really thought he was all-powerful and thought he was all-good, if I knew that God really loved me, that I had a dear and loving father who was competent, there'd be much less aggro in my life. Now, I'm not saying that you or I should never be depressed, that we should never worry. Our Lord himself sweated blood in the agony of the garden. Our Lord wept over Lazarus. What I'm saying is this. You and I, when tempted to mistrust God, in fact, probably don't handle our temptations as well as we should. Not really knowing God really loved us. Now, if we did really know that God really loved us, then 
and it's difficult to say this, then if we understood that God is not incompetent, that God is in control of his universe, that God does look on us with love, then we would be able to praise and thank him for everything. Or is the one thing we couldn't praise and thank him for? If there was, it would be because we were thinking that at that point, God's universe had either slipped out of his control and he couldn't manage it, or else that at that point he gave in to a bit of malice and didn't do the job properly. But if we think he is all-powerful and is all-loving, then every single incident in this life is matter for praise and thanking him. But what about sin? I said every single thing is matter for praise and thanking him. Sin is not really a thing. Sin, however concrete its consequences and however dramatic the action, is in fact a no-thing. Sin is the movement of my will away from God. It is, as it were, a vacuum, a blank where there should have been something, namely allegiance to God's will. But the consequences of sin, they are willed directly or permitted by God. What is quite certain is that the dispositions of atoms and molecules in this universe at this present moment are willed directly by God, even when those dispositions are the way they are because of sin. Now, if I really knew that God really loved me, I would be able to praise and thank him for everything. Now, I find it very hard to praise and thank him for everything. I'm not saying, of course, that we should enjoy everything. The praise and the thanks could be through gritted teeth and through tears. Was our Lord enjoying it when he went on with the agony in the garden, when he didn't come down from the cross, when he accepted his Father's will? It was love. There wasn't joy there, was there? To know that God really loves us would enable me to, perhaps with tears and with gritted teeth, enable me to embrace God's will, no matter what it was. Meanwhile, the worry about the past, the worry about the future, the depression at the present moment, those are temptations to think that God doesn't really love me. Now, it's a hard thing to say. One's only got to switch on the news to see disasters, sometimes of an immense scale. Disasters in the world, disasters in the church, disasters in society, in one's own family, and one's own personal disasters. Yet God is to be praised and thanked for everything because he is a dear and loving father. He is God. He is all-powerful. He is my father. He is all-loving.
my temptation to react otherwise is a temptation to mistrust God. Your sky.